Pushkin. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. You know, there's something about the Porsche way of doing things that just speaks to me. Take the all-new Porsche Panamera, for example. It's not just another sedan. It's a bold choice for those who aren't afraid to go against the flow, both with the car they choose to drive or the way they live their life. The Panamera redefines sports cars, comfortably seating four and proving that you don't have to sacrifice luxury for performance. Build your dream Panamera online right now at configurator.porsche.com and choose boldly. Here's my typical day. Get the kids up, hang out with my daughter, make her breakfast, go to work, do 10 zillion things like write a book and make a podcast like this, grab lunch, try to get some exercise, come home an hour before bedtime, make dinner, email, sleep, repeat. There is no room for error in my life. If I get sick or even feel sluggish, the whole delicate system collapses. So what do I do? I take care of myself. I drink less, eat better, sleep more. And recently, I've added a new wrinkle, nutritional supplements from Symbiotica. I take them in the morning. They prepare me for the day, make me feel better and stronger. They even taste good. To really focus on routine, they even have a convenient subscription program. When you start a subscription, your supplements arrive at your doorstep every month. If you're ready to focus on your health and feel the results, head over to Symbiotica.com and use code GLADWELL for 15% off your subscription order. And the Emmy goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And the People's Choice Award goes to... Thank you to the Academy for this incredible recognition. I'm so honored. I'm so honored. Everybody wants to know what I would do if I didn't win. I guess we'll never know. Everybody gets a prize in modern America. Actors, writers, musicians. But you know who doesn't get a fancy prize? The hardworking administrators of America's elite colleges and universities. For years, I've observed this oversight with what can only be described as dismay. Until I decided, damn it, if this country wasn't going to honor the beleaguered giants of the Ivy League, then I would. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to Revisionist History, my podcast about things overlooked and misunderstood. In this episode, we are pleased to inaugurate the first annual Revisionist History Higher Education Award. In honor of our company's namesake, we're going to call them the Pushkin Prizes. Folks, these prizes are super 
prestigious. You can't see this because this is audio, but we have little gold statuettes of Alexander Pushkin himself. You're going to walk into the lobby of your favorite 18th century ivy-colored marble and granite university administration building, and there, in a glass case, below the Tiffany chandelier, is going to be a Pushkin. That is, if you're lucky. I promise that over the next few years, the giants of American academia will be graced with a Pushkin statuette in recognition of one stupendous achievement or another. And in this episode, we begin our awards program with the Mac Daddy of Pushkin Prizes, the George Santos Memorial Pushkin Prize for egregiously deceptive self-promotion. My parents came to this country in search of the American dream. Today, I live that American dream. Only in this country, only in this country can the little boy born in a basement apartment in Jackson Heights, Queens, in New York City, become a United States congressman at 34. It's a story of survival, of tenacity, of grit, as we like to call it. Actually, it's not a story of survival, tenacity, and grit, as we like to call it. The story of George Santos, congressman from Long Island, is the story of someone who made up basically everything on his resume. And it is that shamelessness that we seek to reward with the first of the coveted Pushkin Prizes. Good morning. Shabbat shalom to everybody. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. We're no stranger to persecution. My grandfather fleeing Ukraine in 1920s to Belgium. Turns out he's not Jewish. Santos said his mom was a 9-11 survivor. Turns out she wasn't even in New York City during 9-11. He said he worked at Goldman Sachs. Turns out he never set foot in Goldman Sachs. And then there was this tallest of tall tales, which I love so much. Hey, you know, it's funny, George, you go right to the heart here of me, Sid and Bernie. This is Santos on a local New York radio show, Sid and Friends in the Morning, during his first congressional run in 2020. And the host, Sid Rosenberg, starts talking about sports. At the very end of your biography, it says, In his spare time, George Anthony enjoys volleyball and tennis Rosenberg says that's funny because both his daughter and his co-host daughter are avid volleyball and tennis players. Then Santos responds. You know, it's funny. I actually went to school on a, on a volleyball scholarship. And, you did? And huh? I did, yeah. Um, when I was in Baruch, we were the number one volleyball Did you graduate from Baruch? That, uh, did you graduate from there? Yeah. So did I. I did. I did. So did I. Oh, very cool. So, great school, great institution. But it's funny that we went to, to play against Harvard, Yale, and we slay them. <laughs> we, <laughs> them. we were champions across the entire Northeast corridor. Every school that came up against us, they were shaking at the time. And it's funny, I was the smallest guy, and I'm six two. We had on our block, on our on our uh, on our block alone, there were six seven, six eight. These guys weren't jumping; they were just stretching their arms up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were we were animal. All of us should have been playing basketball, but we chose volleyball because it was easier. <laughs> so it was a it was a great time. Uh, I look, I sacrificed both my knees and got very nice knee replacements, uh, knee replacements from oh, wow. HSS. 
playing volleyball. That's how serious I took the game. (laughs) Well, that's how serious you're taking politics as well. Remember this name, folks. George Santos out in the 3rd District. This is, to my mind, the gold standard George Santos fabrication. A wedding cake of prevarication. The Washington Post did a breakdown of the tape, and here's what they found. Let's start with the smallest lies and work backwards. Brooke didn't beat Yale at volleyball because Yale doesn't have a varsity volleyball team. Santos later said he played the position of striker. Volleyball teams don't have strikers. That's soccer. Nor did Santos have a volleyball scholarship at Baruch because Baruch doesn't give out volleyball scholarships. And at 6'2", he would not have been the shortest player in the team, even if he had been on the team. But he wasn't. He never played volleyball at Baruch. Maybe because he never attended Baruch at all, which means his knees are perfectly fine unless, that is, he blew them out playing some other imaginary sport. That's seven lies in a row. And if you listen to the tape, it's clear that he made up the whole string on the fly. The man is an icon. And with our first Pushkin Prize, we ask, what American college came closest in the past year to this lofty standard? Believe me, there were many nominees, all of them worthy. Envelope, please. And the winner is... Columbia... University! The big beginning when you heard, when you said, I want to investigate Columbia's rise to number two, did you, in the back of your mind, think there might be something questionable going on? Yes. Not even, no, not in the back of my mind, in the front of my mind. You're listening to a math professor at Columbia named Michael Thaddeus, 50s, long hair. I went to see him in his office on the Columbia campus full of books and strange, captivating jottings on the wall. My father was a mathematician. I have great affection for the species. If you Google Thaddeus, you'll find papers that begin with things like, we discuss symplectic cutting for Hamiltonian actions of non-abelian compact groups. By using a degeneration based on the Vinberg monoid, we give, in good cases, a global quotient description of a surgery construction introduced by Woodward and Meinrenkin and show it can be interpreted in algebra geometric terms. I have no idea what that means, but Michael Thaddeus does, which is to say that when it comes to numbers and statistics and things, he's someone to take very seriously. So one day not long ago, he hears something that doesn't seem right. So I saw that Columbia had risen to number two. I think, in fact, um, this was even mentioned by our own dean at a faculty meeting. I think that's how I found out about it. The dean announces to everyone, I have amazing news. Columbia has just risen to number two in the U.S. News College rankings, just a hair behind Princeton. Everyone basks in the glow of the school's extraordinary achievement because you know what a high U.S. News rankings means. More alumni dollars, more prestige, more applications, more excitement and desire from neurotic upper-middle-class suburban parents. For anyone with Ivy League dreams, it's the holy grail. I mean, if you have a kid in high school and your kid said, Mom, I just got into Columbia, you would be over the moon. And why would you be over the moon? Because Columbia is number two in the U.S. News rankings. So the dean makes her big announcement. But Michael Thaddeus, the numbers guy, isn't buying it. And that just piqued my curiosity. Two is pretty high ranking. You know, in particular, we were tied with Harvard and MIT, 
which are institutions that objectively have certain big advantages over us. They have much larger endowments, they have much more space than we do. And I just, you know, I've also, over the years, I've taken a greater and greater, perhaps almost obsessive interest in facts and figures about the university. I look at a lot of websites where the numbers appear. Um, and I just wondered how could Columbia have performed so well on this ranking as to be tied with institutions that have these objective advantages over us? How do the numbers break down? Columbia started in these rankings at 18th, then began a steady, dramatic climb past Cornell, Washington U, Rice, Vanderbilt, Brown, Dartmouth, Northwestern, Duke, Caltech, Penn, Johns Hopkins, University of Chicago, Yale, Stanford. In the past five years alone, they've gone from fifth to third to second, shooting like a shiny asteroid past their glittering peers. I'm a runner. You know, in the running world, the tell for whether someone is doping is a, a, an unexpected improvement. You know, when the 27-year-old miler suddenly lops three seconds off their personal best, I see. you say, aha. A sudden improvement is the tell. A sudden, um, out-of-context improvement. Oh, my. The first thing Thaddeus did after the faculty meeting is buy a subscription to the U.S. News rankings. He downloaded the data Columbia submitted for his application, and his eye falls on class size. Columbia reported to U.S. News that 82.5% of its classes had less than 20 students. Thaddeus looked at that number and thought, huh? Anyone who was taught here, as I have for the last 25 years, knows that our class sizes are not particularly small for an elite university and that they have been steadily growing. I'm teaching calculus, or I have just finished teaching a calculus course that had about 76 students, and that's typical for a course of that nature. The reporting to U.S. News said that, uh, what was it again? I think 82.5% of all classes enroll below 20 students, and that just did not square with my experience at all. So he decided to fact-check Columbia's claim. He went to the university's class catalog and pulled out the data on all 30,000 of the school's classes. I took the HTML code of those pages, um, downloaded the source code, concatenated all the files. Then I used a text editor, Emacs, to edit the resulting gigantic file in such a way that I turned it into a... Um, database, comma-separated database, um, with the uh, course names, numbers, and enrollments. And then I opened it up in Excel. He analyzed the data, double-checked his math, and realized his pokey feeling was justified. I was able to arrive at an estimate that was more like 62 to 68 percent, a far cry from 83 percent. Now he's getting suspicious. He picks another number. The U.S. News rankings penalizes a school if it has too many part-time faculty. Columbia told U.S. News that it only had 137 part-timers. But Thaddeus found that the school also had to report this statistic to the Department of Education. The number reported the government was over 1,000, and I think that that's the more accurate number. To me, this is a really important figure. The, the, the balance between full-time and part-time faculty is a 
a crucial matter for the future of intellectual life and the future of American universities. If, if we just casualize our faculty, we, we switch to a sort of gig economy model where most people are working contingently part-time. That's going to be disastrous for the quality of education. It's going to be disastrous for the um, quality of intellectual life. And so we need to have uh, honest, reliable figures about this. And yet we have these two figures from Columbia that differ by a factor of eight. He kept going. U.S. News wants to know what percentage of your faculty has a terminal degree in their field. Basically, do they have a Ph.D. or not? Columbia reported the highest terminal degree number of any college in the entire country, 99.5%, which U.S. News rounded up to 100%. That's everyone. So Thaddeus goes to the faculty directory and looks to see if there's anyone teaching at Columbia who only has a bachelor's degree and finds dozens and dozens of faculty with no more than a BA to their name. And that was enough that there was no way that the percentage could have been yeah. 99.5. Columbia says its student-faculty ratio is 6 to 1. It's not. It's more like 11 to 1. On and on. Every single figure that where I could check it independently, I found a significant discrepancy between what was reported to U.S. News and what I could confirm elsewhere. Then he sat down and wrote up a massive analysis of his findings. Charts, graphs, computer analyses, pages upon pages. He puts it up on his faculty webpage, and there it sits for weeks and weeks, until, for some strange reason, someone posts a link to Thaddeus's manifesto on the message board of the running website, letsrun.com. If you are unfamiliar with the message boards of Let's Run, here are some typical threads. Tui runs crazy 423 anchor leg for NC State, but still not enough for DMR. Or, at 27, I finally realized every tattoo anyone has is for attracting a mate. Or, RIP, Spencer, the official dog of the Boston Marathon, has died. Now, how do I know about this? Because Let's Run is one of my favorite websites. I am one of those people dutifully reading the Let's Run message boards. So I see a link and click on it, because you know how I feel about the U.S. News rankings. I'm obsessed with them. I've lost track of how many revisionist history episodes have been devoted to testifying to their stupidity. I don't understand why college administrators care so much about them, why parents and their college-bound teenagers go nuts about them. When law schools and medical schools began dropping out of the U.S. rankings, I walked around the streets of New York, pounding on my chest like I was personally responsible. Do you see what I'm saying? I was the target audience for the Thaddeus expose. Again, I salute you. You were sort of the tipping point, as I said. I mean, but when when you started tweeting about it, that was when the rest of the world started to take notice. So I'm I'm grateful for that. Aw, the first nice thing anyone has ever said about my Twitter. So the story goes everywhere. Columbia goes into a defensive crouch. And the U.S. News reanalyzes the situation and downgrades Columbia back to 18. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 
1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Imagine you're part of a typical American family in the 17 or 1800s. After a long winter, you'd find the inside of your home covered in a thick layer of soot. Your kerosene lamps in your coal or wood heating system would have rendered your home in desperate need of a vigorous cleaning. And thus began the annual ritual of spring cleaning, which also included the very important job of changing out your smelly straw mattress. And while your current mattress most likely isn't made of straw, there's still a good chance it needs replacing. You deserve a Sattva luxury mattress. Sattvas are meticulously handcrafted and include all the luxury features you'd expect from a high-end mattress. But because they're sold online, they cost a fraction of the price of retail. What's more, Sattva will set up your mattress in the room of your choice and take your old one at no extra charge. After all, you've got enough work ahead of you with all that spring cleaning to do. And now, save $200 on $1,000 or more at sattva.com slash gladwell. That's S-A-A-T-V-A dot com slash gladwell. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was raised not to complain. I had one of those English stiff upper lip fathers. He carried his wounds and grievances on the inside. And I'm the same way. It's very hard to tell the difference between when I'm calm and happy and when I'm teetering on the edge. Is that good? Sometimes. Keeps things calm for my kids. But there are times when we have to share our burdens and enlist the help of others in making sense of our lives. That's where therapy comes in. A good therapist is someone who can walk with you and make that load on your shoulders a little lighter. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Gladwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Gladwell. I know what you're thinking. The Pushkin Prize is a highly prestigious award. Those statuettes are coveted. So how can we be sure that Columbia meets the elevated standard set by our namesake, George Santos? Very good question. Please join me as we break it down. To my mind, there are three criteria Columbia needs to meet to rise to Santos-level deception. The first is gratuitousness. That's the power of the Santos bit about his volleyball career at Baruch. This was a lie fundamentally different from his claims to being Jewish, working at Goldman Sachs, and running a charity for unwanted pets. Sorry, I left that one out before. Those were all lies that helped his case with the voters of Long Island. A Jewish investment banker who loves domestic animals is pretty much the Long Island equivalent of George Clooney. But no one was going to vote for him because he blew out two knees battling as the shortest man on the Baruch volleyball squad. He had them a Jewish Goldman Sachs and abandoned kittens. The volleyball lie was pure gilding the lily. 
and that's what makes it so heroic. Santos lied when it wasn't even in his interest to lie. Now, does Colombia meet this standard? Was their deception gratuitous? In order to answer this question, I turn to revisionist history's resident data scientist, Lauren Lavelle. Lauren, Lauren, Lauren. Hey, Malcolm. We ride again. Some of you may remember Lauren from the Project Dillard episode of Revisionist History. A group of undergraduates at Reed College hacked their way into the U.S. news algorithm, which gave them a computer model that can test any hypothesis about a school's rankings. So I asked Lauren, who studied statistics at Reed, to use the model to figure out how a historically black college could rise in the U.S. news rankings. You may recall her answer. It was that the best way for a college full of black students to rise in the U.S. news rankings was to let in lots of white students. And I can't emphasize enough that this model was built by undergraduate students for a class project. They did a great job, and this model works amazingly. Yeah. You know, it wasn't some super prestigious data scientist getting paid millions of dollars to do this for some super prestigious university. Like, it's... Students. In other words, the barriers to manipulation are low. Yes. So I said to Lauren, let's use the trusted Reed College model to get at this question of gratuitousness. I send her a list of questions, starting with, tell me which of Columbia's whoppers mattered the most. And her conclusion was a shocker. The thing that's really making the biggest difference is the faculty resources category. So for faculty resources, we have our class size, our percent of our faculty that are full-time, and our student-to-faculty ratio. U.S. News grades all universities on a scale of 0 to 100. So Princeton at number 1 is 100. Columbia is a close second at 96. According to Lauren's analysis, fiddling with just those three variables gave Columbia an 8-point boost. And the reason that's unexpected is because faculty resources only count for a tiny amount in the overall U.S. News ranking algorithm. You tinker with those variables, you get a massive payoff. Exactly. And when you you change just one or two of them, again, it's only like a one or two point. But when you put all three of them together, it's the synergies between these variables that create these big jumps. Wait, so Lauren, I want to pause on this. Yeah. This is really interesting because... This supports the notion that this was not an accidental uh, happening at, at Columbia. This, this suggests there was some significant thought behind this, because what you told me is something that's not intuitive. Right. I would have thought that you could identify one whiz bank that would have given us a massive payoff. We wouldn't have had to do anything else. But what you're saying is, no, you actually, it's an unexpected area, gives you a huge payoff. And also, if you want to get a 12-point swing, you have to tinker with a lot of variables. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's there's some kind of thing greater than the sum of its parts that's at work here that you could only stumble on if you went behind the scenes and sort of tried to figure out the murky black box that is U.S. News. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. So can we do screen share on here? Is that a thing? Can I show you my code? Can you can you tilt your camera to just show me the thing in the... Oh, no, I see. Oh, it's, not, I can oh, it's on your screen. Can you screen share an email? Uh, Lauren, I'm 59 years old. I barely know how to work a computer. <laughs> Sorry, this went on for a bit. 
This is what happens when a data scientist tries to communicate with a boomer over Zoom. Lauren lapsed into geek mode for like 20 minutes, talking about unexpected nonlinearities. Her point was that the way to climb the rankings is not obvious. It's a laundry list of nips and tucks that an unexpected combination give you a facelift. If you tried to do it just by eyeballing the criteria that US News makes public, you'd fail. To go, to go back to the point I was saying before, to my mind, this argues powerfully for some kind of premeditation on the part of Columbia. I mean, we have no idea what they did, so it's all in the realm of speculation, but they basically manufactured a 12-point swing, and it's very hard to imagine how you could manufacture a 12-point swing uh, by the seat of your pants, because it's not intuitive. I agree there's probably some dirty play happening somewhere. Lauren, they hired someone like you. That's what they did. <laughs> somewhere out there, there is some brainy 26-year-old with blood on their hands. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe. To be clear, I don't know that they hired someone like Lauren to coordinate this. But here's the crucial fact that puts Colombia in George Santos' territory. Lots of Colombia's inventions don't have much of a payoff. Like, for instance, their most spectacular nonsense of all, the big kahuna, concerns something called instructional resources. The more money you spend on teaching, the more U.S. News rewards you. And the number Columbia claimed to spend on teaching was hilariously large, just over $3 billion. Thaddeus spent a huge amount of time trying to figure out just where that preposterous number came from before he realized they just added in the $1.2 billion they spend every year on patient care at Columbia's medical center. They're pretending that the person getting an appendectomy is a student, which is completely and utterly bananas. Now, what difference did this particular outrageous bit of shenanigan make? Let's see, I have a graph somewhere. Okay, so Columbia reported that it spends about $3 billion on instruction. This is for fiscal year 2022. In its consolidated financial statements, they report for instruction and educational administration about $2 billion. Oh, the reason we know this is a lie is that on its official financial statements, which are audited by actual professionals, the school doesn't pull the same stunt. So that's a billion dollars extra that they're reporting to U.S. News, basically. Yeah. And when that works out on a per-student basis, you know, it's a lot of money that they're kind of you feel a playing around with there. Are you telling me, Lauren, that a billion dollars is a lot of money in your in your book? Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> like, this number that's so large, the human brain literally can't even understand. Imagine. Um, and yet, when we drop that $3 billion down to $2 billion, we're still only seeing, like, a three-point drop in the score, two or three points. So from about 96 to about a 94 or 93. Three points, that's it. If they were only going to cheat by inflating their student instructional expenditures by a billion, they only mm -hmm. get a three-point jump. That's what exactly. you're saying. Okay, yeah. all right, that's good to know. 
which sounds crazy, right? Like that's a lot of money to not really make a big difference in your score. Yeah. So if you're the president of Columbia and I come to you and I say, we can drop an imaginary billion into this and we're only getting three points, you're saying, okay, but I'm not, it's not floating your boat. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a very high return rate. You know what I'm saying? It's gratuitous. It's just like George Santos and Baruch Volleyball. In retrospect, that was their error, wasn't it? They shouldn't have done the billion. The billion dollar thing was so obvious and egregious, and it gave them such a small payoff. Yeah. Why, if you're trying to get away with some shenanigans, would you? It's a ridiculous overstatement. Like it's more than it's larger than the corresponding figures for Harvard, Yale, and Princeton combined. I know it's so bananas. Like <laughs> it's so bananas. Here's my you know what my interpretation is? So there's like some dude, man or woman, is charged with coming up with a strategy. And that that's the one they do last. So it's like it's it's Monday morning at 3 a.m. They got to hand in their proposal for hacking the U.S. news by 9 a.m. They've been up for 48 hours. They've done all the hard stuff, and they're like, F it. Let's just throw in an yeah. extra bill on this. Why they- <laughs> not? Just throw in a few extra zeros. <laughs> the bar set by George Santos was very high. The Pushkin Prize Committee believes Columbia met it. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet, but you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card, with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, Credit is subject to lender approval, and terms apply. I come from a family of tea drinkers, epic tea drinkers. My mom and dad would have tea at breakfast, then they would break from their work at 11 for more tea, then again at 3 for afternoon tea with biscuits. Tea, tea, tea. And where do I get my tea? Harney & Sons. Harney & Sons is a third-generation American family-owned tea business. Harney & Son was founded by John Harney 40 years ago and is now run by his sons, Paul and Mike. Mike's eldest sons, Alex and Emmerich, third generation, play a strong role in the day-to-day operations. They only sell tea that makes you smile. Over the 40 years, they've developed and maintained wonderful relationships with tea growers and brokers to bring only the finest teas back for their customers. Harney & Sons has over 300 varieties of teas to choose from. From worldwide bestseller hot cinnamon spice to single estate teas like Japanese Girokuro, organic Darjeeling, and Ali Shang Oolong from Taiwan, and many more. My personal favorite Harney tea is Lapsang Sushang, 
which you would know if you ever listened to the Revisionist History podcast devoted to tea, where we brought in one of America's greatest tea minds for a sit-down. Harney and Sons makes tea an everyday luxury. Free shipping on domestic orders with no minimums, and there is always a quality guarantee with 30-day returns. Visit them at harney.com. I want to talk about making bold choices. Eyebrow raising, head turning, and often, why didn't I think of that choices? Like thinking you could make a car that's fast enough to race on the weekend and still drive to work on Monday. Or thinking you could take on racing's giants with a small, sleek new race car and win. Bold choices that would eventually result in the all-new Porsche Panamera. A car for those who aren't afraid to go against the flow, both with the car they choose to drive or the way they live their life. Now, let's talk comfort and performance. The revolutionary Porsche Active Ride Suspension constantly adjusts to keep the driver and passengers comfortable, whether you're cruising down the highway or taking those hairpin turns like a pro. And listen, who says a sports car can't be practical? The Panamera redefines sports cars comfortably seating for and proving that you don't have to sacrifice luxury for performance. Build your dream Panamera online right now at configurator.porsche.com and choose boldly. Okay, criteria number two. The second thing our namesake George Santos teaches us is that you have to show as little remorse as possible. When the furor over his lies was at its peak, he was unruffled. I don't understand where these allegations come from. Oh, George Santos lives in a fantasy world or whatever it is that they're trying to elude there because it's just people who know me know that that's just not the case. People who know me, which is hilarious, right? Because the whole reason there was a controversy over George Santos is that he wouldn't tell us who he was. At some point, some enterprising journalists counted seven different names that Santos has used over the years. For Pushkin Prize consideration, we need that kind of remorselessness. Let me give you what I think is a relevant counterexample. It concerns Temple University's online business school. The story goes that the dean of the B-School there, a man named Moshe Porat, was upset about his school's low U.S. news ranking. So he sends several of his underlings to Washington, D.C. to complain to the U.S. News rankings team. And in the course of that meeting, U.S. News lets slip that they don't actually check any of the data that schools send them. So the underlings report this back to Moshe, and Moshe's like, great, I guess there's no state troopers on this stretch of the university prestige highway. So he hires a data scientist. They figure out that what really matters for online business schools is what percentage of the school's incoming class has taken the GMAT. In Temple's case, it's something like 19%. So Moshe changes that number to 100%. And voila, Temple's online business school vaults to number one in the U.S. News online B-School rankings. Now, you hear that story and you say to yourself, why wasn't Moshe up for a Pushkin Prize. And believe me, we thought long and hard about his nomination. I mean, Moshe was convicted of fraud and sentenced to 14 months. He committed a crime. The charges against Parat 
were not just simply that he defrauded U.S. news rankings, but that he defrauded um, applicants to the school, students at the school, and donors, um, all of whom look at the rankings and making their decision about where to direct their money. That's Jennifer Williams, who was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philadelphia at the time of the Temple case. And in fact, the scheme as charged in the indictment was very successful. Not only did the rankings improve dramatically, but the enrollment went way up and the, the total amount of tuition that Temple was able to get due to the increased enrollment was almost $40 million over the course of several years. So that is the goal of the fraud. That's what made this a crime. So why doesn't Temple get the Santos Award? Because, and this is crucial, the school has too much remorse. When word leaks out about Moshe's shenanigans, the school hires a big-name outside law firm, Jones Day, to investigate. The university pays out millions of dollars in damages to the students who enrolled, thinking they were getting a degree from the number one ranked school in the country. It was Temple who turned in Moshe to the authorities. This is not how Columbia behaved at all. Thaddeus releases his report on February 28th, 2022, and Columbia responds with a press release from the school's provost on June 30th. Four months later, I'm quoting, Columbia has long conducted what we believe to be a thorough process for gathering and reporting institutional data, but we are now closely reviewing our processes in light of the questions raised. The ongoing review is a matter of integrity. We will take no shortcuts in getting it right. Temple hired one of the world's biggest law firms, Columbia, launched a review. The approach has been just to say as little as possible, um, try to attract as little attention and wait for the storm to blow over. Are you saying that no member of the administration has reached out to you since you published that article? Good God, no. Wait, that's nuts. That's nuts. I'm, I'm glad you think so. I asked the question at a faculty meeting, did the review that Columbia conducted explore the question of intent about whether you know these falsehoods were provided intentionally did anyone know that they were false? Uh, um, and if so, who? And the answer was, well, no, our, our review did not uh, look into that question. So it's clear to me that the review was not seriously intended to get to the bottom of the matter. It was not a review. Because the Santos criteria are so rigorous, I realized I needed to take further steps to see if Columbia's remorselessness remained in place. First, I waited to see whether they would update the June 30th press release. I waited, waited. Six months passed. So then I decided I needed to contact them directly. I sent an email, asked for an interview with the provost, waited, 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 until finally someone in the media relations department emailed me back with a link to the press release of June 30th. We are not commenting beyond the statements issued below, I was told. So I respond, because I don't want some blogger down the line saying I rushed to judgment on the remorselessness criteria. Are you sure I write back? I talk about Michael Thaddeus. I tell him about Lauren and her computer model. I tell him about Jennifer Williams talking about the Temple case. Are you sure? For the university not to comment under these circumstances will, from your perspective, 
be problematic, don't you think? A week passes. I get an email back. We're working on it. A month passes. Finally, I get another email, essentially restating the original press release. I print out the statement and run around the office, holding it high. I can't believe it! We have met the formal standard for remorselessness! One last bar to me. You have to be reckless to win a Pushkin Prize. Your lies have to put you in potential jeopardy if you want to win one of our coveted gold statuettes. We have gratuitousness. We have remorselessness. But do we have recklessness? We do. And to say how, I need to be serious for a second. I actually love Colombia. I think it's an extraordinary place, full of extraordinary people. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in the office of some professor at Columbia and had the world opened up for me. I love Columbia, even though I know Columbia will never be Princeton or Harvard. They're never going to have $50 billion in the bank. And without $50 billion in the bank, it's awfully hard to climb to the top of the U.S. news rankings. But the president of Columbia ought to be able to stand up and say, we are the preeminent institution of learning in the greatest city in the world. And if we have lots of part-time faculty, it's because we are drawing on the resources of amazing people who spend their working days on Broadway or Madison Avenue or Wall Street. And if our classes are large, it just means that every student has the privilege of rubbing shoulders with lots of other curious and willing students. And by the way, if you are someone who believes that the best measure of a university's intellectual vitality is how much money it has in the bank, or what percentage of its faculty have PhDs, or how many students are in its classes, then Columbia is probably going to be wasted on you. The president of Columbia ought to be able to stand up and explain to the world what Columbia is and what it stands for. But he didn't do that. And his school got consumed with succeeding at a rankings game that is morally and intellectually bankrupt. Some jackass in the Columbia administration, and I have no idea who it was, but I hope they are found out and made to do a thousand hours of community service teaching arithmetic to some first grader. That jackass decided to cook the books, and now what do we have? A school that has broken the most fundamental of promises to its own community. Let me quote to you from the Columbia University Code of Conduct, the ethical standard Columbia holds its own students to. Falsification, forgery, or misrepresentation of information to any university official in order to gain an unfair academic advantage in coursework or lab work on any application, petition, or document submitted to the university is prohibited. This includes, but is not limited to, falsifying information on a resume, fabrication of credentials or academic records, misrepresenting one's own research, and providing false or misleading information. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the winner of the Pushkin Prize for gratuitous, remorseless, and recklessly deceptive self-promotion.
This episode of Revisionist History was produced by Kiara Powell with Lee Mengistu, Ben Nadav Haffrey, and Jacob Smith. Original scoring by Luis Guerra. Fact-checking by Cashel Williams and Tali Emlin. Our showrunner is Peter Clowney. Mastering by Flan Williams. Engineering by Nina Lawrence. And special thanks to Columbia's own Michael Thaddeus, who not only did the research that inspired this episode, but also made a joke when I was talking to him that inspired the name of our first ever Santos Memorial Prize. There's a postscript to this story. On June 6th, two days before this episode aired, Columbia University made an announcement. They were dropping out of the U.S. News undergraduate rankings, becoming the first Ivy League school to abandon the U.S. News methodology that did so much to make the Ivy League the Ivy League. The press release, like so many of the press releases issued by Columbia over the course of this controversy, read like it was dictated by a room of $10,000-an-hour attorneys on a Zoom call from Midtown Manhattan. In a statement, Columbia said that in response to the allegations of cheating, it had, quote, conducted an exhaustive internal review and where errors were confirmed, issued public corrections and made changes to the collection methodologies that led to the inaccuracies. I got an email from Michael Thaddeus almost immediately. This is completely untrue, he wrote. Columbia has never corrected the false information it provided, probably over many years to U.S. News, about class sizes or about proportion of full-time faculty, for example. What it did was admit, in a general way, to, quote, outdated and or incorrect methodologies and acknowledge that, quote, class size data was previously reported incorrectly, unquote. But it never corrected the false figures, nor has it even specified which figures were false or for how long, end of quote. Oh, and by the way, the school's provost, whose office is responsible for its submissions to U.S. News, suddenly announced that she was resigning after an unusually short term in office. We may have to do a follow-up, don't you think? If you're listening to Revisionist History on Pushkin Plus, you already know the pleasure of hearing our shows early and without ads. If you're not part of Pushkin Plus, my friends, you're missing out. Our season's really heating up. You will not regret this. Get our new episodes two weeks early and listen to every episode of this, your favorite show, ad-free.